For the first three centuries of the church, there were persecutions that went on, sometimes with decades that would intersperse them of peace, and other times more intensely would the church be persecuted. In the pauses or the times where there was not the persecution, there was a movement that began going out into the desert in order to live the Christian life rad- radically. We call these folks the church, or rather the desert fathers and desert mothers. Hermits, hermitesses, and sometimes communities that formed, especially in, the Egypt, in Egypt, in the desert regions there. It was a flourishing of the Catholic faith. One of these desert fathers, Abba, the word for father, Abba Apollo, had a vision. In this vision, he noticed uh, Satan or the evil one coming to tempt him, harass him, perhaps even try to make him afraid. But he noticed that the devil had very, very skinny legs and had no knees. You might say, well, Father, of course, you've told us, maybe it was last week, that the angels don't have bodies. They're pure spirits. Of course, the devil has no knees. Yes, but in order for any spirit to appear to a person, they take some kind of physical form. And it is emblematic that the devil would have no knees because he cannot or will not bow and worship God. Today we continue our discussion, therefore, on devotion to the Eucharist. We've been hearing from John's Gospel these beautiful passages about the bread of life, how Jesus is the true bread from heaven that comes down to feed us. And so we were meditating on the interior attitudes that must be present to receive the Lord worthily. We've talked about how our bodies, we worship with them, We worship God not just with our souls, but we worship God as this composite of body and spirit. And today we focus in particular on our reception of Holy Communion. Go over a few kind of basic things and then we'll dive a little bit more uh, into a particular issue or theologically. First, when we come to receive the Lord, um, the church tells us that we ought to and that we need to first adore what we receive. This is based in scripture, based in Augustine, based in the, in the fathers of the church, that before we receive the Lord, we must adore him. And so when we come up in the communion line, we need to make some form of adoration of reverence to the Lord. This can be a bow from the waist, not just a head bow, but a bow from the waist, a profound bow. I'll give you an example here. It can be genuflecting or it can be kneeling to receive Holy Communion. We'll get into that a little bit more, but let's touch on a few other things first. Also, when we come to receive, we should make sure that we have brushed our teeth or used uh, mouth rinse before so that we're giving the Lord a clean entryway. And that also, if we receive on the hands, they've been washed. And if we've got, maybe we're working on a project on Saturday or Uh, We got paint or marker or uh, whatever on our hands. uh, That should be washed off. And if we can't get it off, then at least for that Sunday, we should receive uh, on the tongue. 
if we receive in the hands, we need to make sure that any particles are left. So in other words, after you put the host in your mouth, you need to double check your hands because each and every one of those particles that is left is the Lord, no less than the host in your hand. It is, those particles are worth more than gold, for it is the king of the universe whom we hold. Objectively speaking, the highest point of the mass is the consecration. Because at the consecration, the elements of bread and wine are turned into the body and blood of Christ. When Jesus says to us, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, quite literally, that living bread is made present on our altars, the Lord himself. Experientially or subjectively, for us, that high point of the Mass is our reception of communion. So objectively, it's the consecration. But we might say that second high point of the Mass is when we receive the Lord. The Mass would be sufficient in, it, in and of itself were the priest the only one to receive. It wouldn't be necessary for everybody else to receive. Of course, it would be a sad thing if there was a church full of people and nobody else came to receive the Lord. Uh, but it would, it would be licit, it would, be, it would suffice, and there would be graces that would be poured out on each and every person that is here and on the whole world. And this is why, even in time of pandemic, even in time of other uh, catastrophes, natural disasters, war, whatever it might be, the priests would still celebrate the Mass each and every day because grace is being poured out. God's mercy is being given to us. So we adore the Lord at that moment of the consecration. Our knees are good. We're, we're kneeling at that point. We're already in a posture of adoration. But for us experientially, when we're coming up to receive the Lord, we also need to adore him externally, not just internally with our hearts, because what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies has an effect upon our souls, and we can actually help ourselves to pray better by worshiping the Lord with our bodies. Pope Benedict, when he was a cardinal, wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And in there, he has a section on the body and a section specifically on kneeling. And he talks about how kneeling is something that is particularly Christian, particularly Judeo-Christian. In the New Testament, there's, uh, I think, about 59 times that kneeling is mentioned. About 24 of those are in the book of Revelation, which is, as we should know, the book of liturgy, the book of worship of God as the public people. So I wish to focus primarily for the rest of our time simply on this one act of kneeling and why it is in particular appropriate for when we receive Holy Communion. Now, some people might raise the objection, but Father, aren't we supposed to be standing when we receive Holy Communion? It is true that the norm uh, in the US, with the U.S. bishops is that we would uh, stand. However, it is not, um, it is not wrong to, um, to kneel. In fact, it is more theologically correct to kneel. Uh, not to brag, but when I was in college, um, a, like through a friend of a friend, somebody had asked me if I would come along with them. They were going to take the cardinal, a cardinal to the airport and they needed somebody else to carry his bags. So I got to go along, and it happened to be the cardinal who was in charge of the congregation for divine worship and the liturgy. And um, 
at this particular point, there was a discussion in, um, particularly in our diocese, but going on in the U.S., you know, is it wrong for people to kneel? Are they being disobedient? What not? So uh, being perhaps the uh, college student who, who wasn't, uh, didn't know the, the right proper protocol with a cardinal, I said, Your Eminence, I've got a question. I've I got to ask you this. And I said, is it wrong to kneel? Remember, this is the cardinal who's in charge of the um, congregation for worship. And he said, absolutely not. The faithful have a right to kneel. And in fact, he, in our conversation, it went on and he, he talked about the importance of kneeling uh, to receive the Lord. Now, not everybody can. And we don't need to get into exactly why is there the norm, but a norm is not the same as a forbidding other people to kneel. Why is it important that we kneel? Well, let's go to our brothers and sisters in Christ first, the Lutherans, in order to understand this. Um, the first, I'm going to share with you two little thing vignettes from that. The first goes back to the 1500s itself. Uh, there's a book, a wonderful little book written by a bishop of the church. He's from, um, not from this country, but from another, but his book has been translated into English, and he shares a story um, actually from the ancient history, the old history of the German Lutheran Church. And this is about um, Martin Luther himself. Now, to understand this, first we have to understand that Lutherans do not understand the same thing that we do about the Holy Communion and the Eucharist. They believe it is a symbol and that Christ is present in some way, but at the end of that um, Lord's Supper the presence of Christ leaves. So perhaps the best way to understand this is that the Lord's Supper for them is like a fireplace. And the elements of bread and wine are like the end of an iron that's placed like one of those pokers to help get the fire going into the fire. When it's heated up, it's indistinguishable from the fire, but it is different. But then when that fire removes, meaning there ends the end of that liturgy, the presence leaves. We do not believe that Jesus is concomitant or is there present with bread and wine. We believe that the bread and wine is transformed. The, the, what it tastes like, what it looks like, what it uh, smells like remain, but the inner substance has been changed. And this is why we reserve the Blessed Sacrament. Because Jesus' present doesn't leave at the end of the Mass, but he remains with us. Those elements have been changed permanently. Okay, with that in mind, though, this describes, nevertheless, the great reverence that was shown for Holy Communion, even by Martin Luther. So the German historical text reads, A woman wanted to receive the Lord's Supper. As she came up to kneel down in front of the chair before the altar and drink. She approached in a brusque manner and hit the chalice of the Lord with her mouth quite hard. And so some drops of the blood of Christ were shed on her clothing and on the backrest of the chair on which she was kneeling. When the Reverend Dr. Luther noticed this, he and the Reverend Dr. Bugenhagen suddenly stood up and ran towards the altar and together with the officiating minister, they cleaned the drops of blood from the woman's clothing and licked up as many drops from the chair as they could. Dr. Martin, Martin was moved so deeply by such an irreverence that he sighed because of what had happened and said these words, O oh God, help us. 
and his eyes were full of tears. There's a great reverence that's shown even though they do not understand the Eucharist in the Catholic sense. And the point that I'd like to bring out is that, notice, the woman was kneeling to receive. The second little vignette is actually from the author, this bishop's encounter with Lutherans in Norway. And um, at the time that he wrote this book, which was probably a couple decades ago, he said this. Until some 10 or 15 years ago, people used to receive communion kneeling and on the tongue. He's speaking of Lutherans. But now they receive standing and in the hand. And so the, this bishop asked his Lutheran um, person that he was talking with, what was the reason for this change? And this person answered, we changed because of the influence of our Catholic brothers. That's a very sad line. Because in the church, up until the latter part of the second, uh, the second half of the 20th century, for hundreds of years, over a millennia, the church received kneeling the body and blood of Christ. Now, many people might think this isn't a big deal because the in interiorly, I'm adoring the Lord. But what we do with our actions is a creed in itself. It expresses what we believe. Uh, places where there is greater reverence for the Blessed Sacrament, the faith flourishes even more. St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us in one of his hymns for Corpus Christi that we ought to dare to show Christ as much reverence as we can. And so what I would like to do to challenge those who can, now again, I understand completely that not everybody can kneel, but for those who can, to give it a try. See how it affects your faith in the Blessed Sacrament. See how that external sign helps you to humble yourself before him who has humbled himself so much, not only to become man, but to take on the appearance of bread and wine, common food. Unfortunately, um, one of the rationales that was given, uh, okay, let me back up a second. Uh, it was never the intention of the council, the Second Vatican Council, to change the posture in which we receive Holy Communion. This was something that was more the spirit of the age. There's the council, when you read the documents, they're very beautiful. And they have, um, they're, they're, they're very um, incredible. But what happened was that at least the six, from the 60s, there was a cultural revolution going on, not only here in the United States, but also in Europe. This cultural revolution also influenced um, a, a liturgical revolution that took place. Some of you may remember that around the perimeters of the sanctuary, there used to be um, an altar rail, and people would go up and kneel there. And this was actually a liberalization of a much older practice, because if you went back and you and I found ourselves in the middle, medieval ages, we would have seen that at the sanctuary, there was something called a rood screen that went from the floor up to the ceiling. And it was to distinguish that inside the sanctuary, we have represented what is God's heavenly dwelling. And that when we come to that, that entrance of that rood screen, uh, we receive the Lord who comes to us from heaven. In Eastern churches, this is the iconostasis or the curtains that are used. Um, in the West, that was reduced to uh, uh, an altar rail so that the people could see more clearly what was going on. 
But the altar rail was an extension of the altar. Often, in many old churches, it had a cloth that was taken over the edge of it. So when people came up to the altar rail, quite literally, it was as though they were coming up to the altar, that extension of Christ coming to feed us. Um, So we humble ourselves before the Lord. And this is an action that is theologically correct. It is a right of the faithful. And if one can do it, it can be done with much spiritual benefit. I think that's enough for today. When we come back uh, next week, uh, we will examine more, uh, a little bit more about our reception of Holy Communion. And we will need to get into next week and probably the following week, which will be our last, uh, the discussion also of um, when and if the church can refuse somebody Holy Communion and what would be those circumstances, when would that be right and whatnot. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.